Good morning, church. It is good to be with you all, to see your lovely faces, even through masks. Um, I can see your eyes. So, um, And it is good to see each and everyone gathered in the household of God. This is a little awkward for me, so you know, I'm, it may take me some time to get used to. Bear with me, okay? Can everyone hear me? All right, wonderful. Um, I'm going to pray. Well, no, Pastor John already prayed. Um, <laughs> but uh, we have uh, much to get through uh, today, really over the next five weeks. So I'm going to um, get right in. Um, as Dr. Hall, thank you, Dr. Hall. That was a poignant, powerful uh, message. And even my soul was blessed. So that if we, if, you know, I don't know if y'all were like this in a past life, but there used to be something we call an undergrad pre-gaming, right? Um, that was, you know, more than pre-game. That was also part of the main course. This is just a, a second um, service in the, in the, you know, five-course meal, you could say. Thank you, Dr. Hall. Um, uh, we are going to be walking through Lamentations over the next five weeks. So if you would, please just open your... Bibles to Lamentations chapter one. Um, uh, so quick, um, I guess, rules for the road as we walk this path. This is obviously a heavy um, topic. And um, if you need uh, a moment, if you need to, you know, step outside, um, or even if you need to rush to the altar and to weep before the Lord. We are creating the space for that. And there are people um, in the household of faith to pray with you as well, okay? Um, please feel free um, and really uh, have the liberty uh, to, to cry, to weep, to mourn as needed, all right? On the morning of May 28th, 2020, I woke up distraught and dismayed. My soul was disquieted within me and unbidden tears streamed down my face. Zoom meetings, telephone conferences, my boys running around and playing, that was all a dull buzz, a background to my aching heart and throbbing temple. Because just three days before, I read, um, because I stopped watching the videos, the painful description of the last moments of an image bearer of God, who had the same complexion as I. Eight minutes, 46 seconds. He pled for help. He pled for mercy. He pled for his mother as the breath of life was snuffed out of him. Most of us here are familiar with what happened to Mr. Floyd that fateful day and the events that cascaded thereafter across this nation and the world. For my family and I, it began a season of deep grief and lament that unfortunately precipitated our leaving the church we'd been members of for over six years. That itself felt like a divorce that deepened our grief. 
it was also the time of COVID. It still is, actually. <laughs> Man, it's been a long season, y'all. Um, in this time, I, I grieved with loved ones and dear friends who lost jobs, who lost family members, who lost friends, who lost community. Sorrow compounded on sorrow, crashing upon my soul like unrelenting waves. From the racial trauma of seeing Black lives cut down to weeping with a dear friend over a miscarriage and a colleague about a broken marriage to struggling with a wayward child. Pain has come for me during this season in many forms, shapes, and sizes. Perhaps that has been your story too. Maybe sorrow has entered your life because of loneliness, because of an ailing body or an injustice that has been done against you. Maybe pain came to you in the form of a job loss or financial struggles, a broken engagement or ongoing conflict in your marriage. Maybe your heart groans under the weight of infertility, of cancer, an adulterous spouse, or even simply the inability to gather regularly in fellowship with the church. And when we think we've come up to gasp for air, the wave comes crashing again. Just this past week alone, we were grieved by the news of a popular so-called Christian apologist who preyed on innocent and vulnerable women, by the news of dozens of people, including children, who quite literally froze to death, and by the news of thousands more dying from COVID-19. On top of what has been an abnormal year going on too, we are continually grieved by the normalcy of thousands of innocent babies murdered in the womb every day in this nation, by the racism, sexism, and misogyny that still persist in our society, by the bitterness, rancor, and violence of our body politic, wave after wave after wave unrelenting sorrow. What then shall we say to these things? Where are we to turn with our pain and sorrow, especially when it's as widespread as this and doesn't look to end soon? What are we to think? How are we to think? How do we weep with those that weep and mourn with those that mourn? Is it enough to say God has a plan and purpose for your pain? Or all things work together for your good? Or one of my favorite, weeping lasts, but for a night, joy comes in the morning. Man, miss me. Miss me with your pitiful, sanctimonious platitudes. My soul is crying out in pain. 
Morning is not coming. I'm surrounded by the deep darkness of night and I do not, cannot see a light. This isn't a tunnel. It's a bottomless pit of pain. What shall I do with my pain? How do I deal with my pain? And the pain of others, and the pain of my community. These are some of the questions that we'll try to address over the next five weeks as we study this book of Lamentations. Now, undoubtedly, this is a difficult topic during a difficult season. And as I said earlier, we want to create space within the church, yes, within the church, for us to grieve, to cry, and weep, to mourn, and lament. Indeed, it is wise to do so. Because as the writer of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 7, verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. And so for the next five weeks, this, this is a house of mourning and lament. Before I dive into our text this morning, I want to give a few introductory thoughts about the subject of lament and why we're doing this and why now during Lent. To the latter question of why we're doing this during Lent, well, why not? I know that sounds like my toddler and it's terrible to answer a question with another question, but for real though, why not? It's not like pain goes on an extended 40-day vacation. You may very well experience some pain and sorrow or know someone around you experiences such during this season. And our job as leaders in the church is to prepare you to respond in a godly way to that pain and sorrow. Additionally, Lent is a perfect season because it's a time where we deprive ourselves of something as we turn to the Lord in preparation to gaze upon the cross and the empty tomb. And one of the historical readings of the, the, the Lenten lectionary is Joel chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. Am I right, Pastor John? <laughs> He's like, I have to agree with you. <laughs> and it states in relevant part, yet even now declares the Lord. Return to me with your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents, he relents over disaster. So as we turn to the Lord with fasting during Lent, we do so with weeping and mourning over the brokenness caused by sin as we look to the promised redemption of Jesus Christ on the cross. This same theme of mourning and the hope of God's steadfast love, we find it in this book of Lamentations. And to the question of why we're we doing this to begin with, well, friends, I don't know if you've noticed, but everything is not all right. Things haven't been going so well around these here parts. 
we are struggling, to say the least. What has been an undercurrent of lament and sorrow in our world, in our lives, is broken into gale force winds that is buffeting us on all sides. And we need to learn to tune our hearts to this pain and the pain of others, to awaken to the meaning of this pain, and to wrestle with our pain through a biblical and God-centered lens. The Book of Lamentations gives us the tools and trains us in wrestling with, in walking through, and in trusting God, even in our pain. So what is lament? I'm indebted to Pastor Mark Vogrob's thinking in writing on lament. I highly commend to you his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. According to Pastor Vogrob, Lament is a loud cry, a howl, or a passionate expression of grief. It gives voice and words to the emotions that believers feel because of pain and suffering. And lament can be personal or communal, or both. Lament is wrestling with the circumstances of life which raise difficult questions regarding the seeming absence of God and the mystery of his purposes. In other words, lament asks at least two questions of God. First, where are you? Second, if you love me, why is this happening? Lament is a path to praise, not the opposite of praise. It is the transition from pain to promise. It is the land between brokenness and God's mercy. Lament ultimately is a prayer. It is the cry of a hurting, confused, pain-filled, yet believing heart. And lament resists the temptation to stop talking to God because we're angry or disenchanted with him, but instead expresses to God what he already knows about our hearts. If I can boil it down, to one sentence, lament is prayer and pain on the path to praise. My praise, I don't necessarily mean praise for God's deliverance from that pain. That could happen or it could not. By praise, I mean the praise of who God is and who he is to you. To praise is to trust God and to hope in God and in his steadfast love and his abounding mercies. Lament is prayer and pain on the path to praise. Lament also interprets praying. It is in its expression, lament deals with more than just the thing that happened but also what lies underneath. It, 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 lament is the idea uh, about grieving the specific issue, but also the reality of the brokenness that underlies the issue. And that's what we see here in the first chapter of Lamentations, as the weeping prophet laments what lies underneath. What is the cause of our pain? What is the cause of our suffering? Chapter one of our book says, 
it is sin. Lamentation, especially chapter one, shows us the brokenness of the world and the holiness of God. It, it tunes our heart to the reality and the sorrow of divine judgment. It, it shows us that grace is only amazing because judgment is real. So let's, let's walk through this poetic chapter and see what God has to teach us here. Starts out, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. See, the very first word of the book actually serves as a title in the Hebrew. It's the word how, right? And it's meant to read both as a question and as a shocking statement. The author, who I believe is the prophet Jeremiah, expresses his sorrow as what has happened. It's as if Jeremiah is asking, how did this happen? So some quick background about how we got here. I know if y'all remember King David and King Solomon, right? The two greatest kings of Israel, the golden years, the hide in the apex of the Israelite empire. Well, after Solomon died, there was a precipitous fall. <laughs> and um, the nation was divided into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom with the 10 tribes, and that was called Israel. And then you had the southern kingdoms with two tribes, and that was called Judah. Now, the problem with both of these kingdoms was they were ratchet. All right, they, 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 were, they, were just, they were just terrible. They were, I mean, adulterers. And that's why I mean they were ratchet because they went after other gods, false gods. They played the harlot. That's how Hosea describes them, right? They completely forgot that whole First Amendment, you shall have no other gods before me. I mean, that just went right out the window. The first one, I mean, you can even make it down to number five or number nine, right? They just threw out number one. They were ratchet. And the Northern Kingdom was especially ratchet because they, they fell much more quickly because they were led by one wicked king after another, and then the Assyrian Empire quickly conquered them and wiped them off the face of the map at 722 BC. Now, this was supposed to serve as a warning to the lower kingdom, to the southern kingdom, Judah. Like, y'all see what just happened to Israel? Y'all better get your act together. Nah, they didn't do that. I mean, why? I, it's like telling, right, my five-year-old, did you see I just punished your older brother? The same thing will happen to you if you don't stop. But he keeps doing it the same way. And I'm... I mean, inevitably, he gets the pat-pat on the bum-bum. That's what happened to Judah. And, and, and we see that in 2 Chronicles 36, which gives us the narrative background to Lamentations. Multiple, after multiple kings were set up and removed, after multiple deportations, after a brutal siege of the city, I mean, people were, were just famine and dying of starvation. The walls of Jerusalem were eventually breached, and the Babylonian army sacked the city in 586 BC. The temple was stripped of all its gold, and, and every vessel of worship was carried away, and with the rest of the city, it was burned to the ground. 
the city, the nation, and the people of Israel were devastated. This is the context of our book. And the first chapter introduces to us the theme and the tone of the book. Each chapter, actually, in this book is an independent lament. And the book reaches its climax and turning point in chapter 3. We'll get there. However, if you've ever read this book, you'll see chapter 4 and 5 doesn't end with a rosy picture. The book doesn't end with a nice, tidy bow, and everybody goes away happy. Instead, the book expresses hope in God's mercy while suffering is still happening. One other thing you need to know about this chapter, there are 22 verses, and there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Each verse starts with a word whose first letter is the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And it's as though, it's as though Jeremiah wants us to see suffering from A to Z. Or in the, in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph to Tav. I looked at um, Dr. Hall because she's the expert. <laughs> this, this is poetry whose language and form is designed to emphasize the comprehensive nature of Jerusalem's destruction. It, it's more than just a historical record of what happened to a city. It's designed to paint for us a picture and deliver to us a message. What is that message? In the first few verses, the city is portrayed as broken, as a lonely widow whose life has taken a tragic turn. Jerusalem used to be full of people. It was great amongst the nations. It was a princess among the provinces. But now she's alone and a slave. She's weeping with tears on her cheeks and She's been abandoned by former lovers and opposed by her friends. Jerusalem is isolated. She is sorrowful and abandoned. Verse 3 to 4, the once glorious nation of God's chosen people is now scattered amongst the nations. She has no resting place. She's been overrun by her adversaries. Even the roads, even the roads cry out. Verse 4, things once connected with celebration and festival are now feeling the pain of rejection. The roads mourn, the festivals are empty, the gates are desolate, the priests groan, and the young women no longer rejoice. And, and central to this pain, uh, to the pain of this lament, is the fact that the enemy has won. Verse 5 says that even the enemy has prospered. The enemy of God and the enemy of God's people now enjoys the blessing of God. How now, Sway? Why? Jeremiah points here that while Babylon was the means, God was ultimately the one behind the destruction of Jerusalem. Look there in verse 5. The Lord has afflicted her. Why? For the multitude 
of her transgressions. This, this makes Lamentations challenging in a way for us because I'm sure there were a handful of people in Jerusalem who were trying to be faithful, right? Maybe there was a couple of people praying for repentance. I mean, I'm reminded of Abraham's intercession for Sodom in Genesis 18, right? He said, even if we could find 10, 10 righteous, God, are you, would you, 10, is that enough? Like he bargained all the way down. I mean, this guy is worse than my mom at the open market. He bargained, 10? Will you take 10? And Jesus, and God was like, well, if I find 10, I'll spare the city. And I'm like, were there not 10 in Jerusalem? Whether there were 10 or two, God's judgment still came. And Lamentation shows us that sometimes innocent and righteous people are still affected by the consequences of national or cultural sins. This book reminds us that sin is more than just an individual issue. Can I go there? That means that abortion is not just a matter of personal privacy between a woman and her doctor. That means that sexual immorality is not just about consenting adults in the privacy of their bedroom. Come on, I don't hear y'all. Racism is not just a matter of individual freedom of speech or thought. Your sin is not just your problem. And my sin is not only affects me. No! The book of Lamentations tells us that sin, mine, Yours affects us all. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to a people. Well, let's not rush past this too quickly. Have you ever actually thought about how your sin affects people? How viewing pornography affects how you invariably objectify women and can lead to predatory behavior? Y'all are quiet. How your self-righteousness leads to anger against those who don't measure up to your exacting standards and calcifies your heart against others? Mm. How your greed deprives others of much-needed resources? Mama, how your selfishness robs the community of the gifts God has blessed them with through you? How your haughtiness and pride leads to division and rancor? Let me not step on some toes here. How your intentional separation from the body, not because you're in a vulnerable demographic or caring for those vulnerable, but simply because of your political abstinence or irrational fear, my, or forsaking the gathering, you deprive the local body of your gifts. And now when a part of the body is missing, the whole body suffers. Am I talking to anybody? Oh, I'm sorry, I may have stepped in there, Pastor John. Please forgive me, I shouldn't have gone there. But y'all catch my drift?
Your sin, my sin, affects more than the subject of the sin. Lamentations tells us that sin is a reproach to a people. And, and that's what underlies Jeremiah's lament here. See there in verse 5, and then in verse 8 through 11, verse 5 introduces the cause as the multitude of her transgressions, and we see this repeated in verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously. And what happened as a result of that grievous sin is their destruction, their utter ruin. And that's a lesson to us of what kind of devastation sin creates. And, you know, it's interesting. Jeremiah puts it in, in this poetic verse here. She became filthy. No who honored her despised her. For they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall was terrible. Look at that imagery. The language speaks of shame, of pollution, of isolation, of exposure, of misery, of hopelessness. Jerusalem is experiencing the abandonment of God and a taste of the consequence of sin. It is literally hell on earth. But the tragedy isn't just individual. The issue is compounded by the fact that sin has affected an entire nation. That's what makes this so horrific. See there in verse 10, the sanctuary was defiled by other nations, and all the people groan as they search for bread. Verse 11. Look at, look at here the depth of devastation and the breath of ruin. So Jeremiah laments the destruction of the beloved city and the sinful rebellion that caused that destruction. The final movement in Lamentations is where Jeremiah pleads for mercy. It's generally directed towards God, but includes statements that incorporate internal wrestling and things that the writer might say to others nearby. He, in verse 12, Jeremiah expresses how shocking the situation in Jerusalem really is. It's as if he wants people who are walking by the city to stop and take notice. Verse 12, the sorrow is enormous. He says, is there any sorrow? Like my sorrow. Any of y'all ever had that kind of sorrow? Where passers-by look and see, almost even feel the weight of your sorrow? That others take notice of the tragedy that has befallen you? You know, that was what it felt like when I read about the sorrow of our dear sister Dana Sandridge and her family. I don't think she minds me sharing this. The heart-rending detail of the evil visitor upon her family is painfully chronicled in a long-form article published in The Atlantic. And after I finished reading that story, I quite literally fell to my knees and wept. 
I wept in prayer for this dear sister. I had no idea the magnitude of her and her family's sorrow. Is there sorrow like my sorrow? Jeremiah wants people to notice what a tragedy had befallen Jerusalem. And in the next verses through verse 17, he shows the city grieving because they're experiencing the judgment of God and divine rejection. And then we get to verse 18. After rehearsing the facts of what has happened to the people of God, now comes the acknowledgement and the confession, the confession that the Lord is in the right. That's stunning, y'all. Especially in light of everything he just talked about. The Lord is in the right, for I've rebelled against his word. Jeremiah is drawing a straight line from their suffering to their rebellion. And he, in verse 19, he gives them more color. He says, I called my lovers, but they deceived me. There is no doubt in his mind as to the connection of their suffering and its relationship to the spiritual adultery. God warned them. But they did not heed the warning. Then God said, enough is enough. And his judgment was poured out against their rebellion. Man, what an emotional toll that judgment was. Along with the weeping and crying, there is distress. In verse 20, my stomach turns. My heart is wrung within me. And again, Jeremiah attributes this to the collective rebellion. And then finally, this lament acknowledges that the watching world feels vindicated by Jerusalem's destruction. Verse 21, they are glad that you have done it. Part of what makes this lament so painful is the fact that the enemies of God feel justified and triumphant in the destruction of God's people. God has shown through his dealing with Judah that he is a just God. And then the lament concludes with a longing for God's final word to be spoken. And the lamenter's exhaustion He's absolutely spent. Now desires that God would adjust the scales of justice, that it may be balanced. Verse 22, let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of my transgressions. For my groans are many, my heart is faint. This is more than just a prayer of retribution. Jeremiah is wrestling with the waywardness of, of God's people, and he longs for every bit of waywardness in the world to be dealt with once and for all. Lamenting divine judgment has expressed the sorrow. He interpreted the cause, and he tuned his heart to who God is. From A to Z. It's clear that we live 
in a broken world and that there is a holy God. He does not deal lightly with sin. There will be consequences in this life and or the next. Now friends, this is a, <laughs> this is a heavy chapter. It may seem a little weird for us to talk like this in church. No, we should be happy, right? We should be optimistic. We should talk about how God loves everybody. There's nothing wrong with being happy and optimistic and, and reveling God's love. But I do think that this first chapter of Lamentations 3 I mean, Lamentations 1 reveals three key considerations that we should apply to the regular rhythms of our lives. The first one is, sin has consequences. I mean, one of the obvious takeaways from this chapter should be the real and devastating effects of sin, not only on the personal level, but on the community. And we talked about this earlier, but I want to emphasize again how this chapter serves as a potent reminder that God did not spare his own people, his covenant people, his beloved people from the consequences of their actions. And we ought to be cautioned against thinking that there is no immediate, that, that because there is no immediate consequence, there is no consequence at all. Mayhaps, and hear me, hear me now and hear me clearly. I'm not saying that I've divined or discerned the ultimate purpose of the plague that stalks the land, but maybe, just maybe, it is a reminder to our sin-souled culture that God's wrath is kindled against sin and his judgment shall surely come in this life. Or the next, sin has consequences. The second thing this chapter should teach us is that God's judgment is part of the gospel. As Christians, when we talk about the gospel, we, we almost often exclusively use the words of, you know, redemption, grace, and, and forgiveness. And, and we should, we should. But we also need to be reminded there is something underneath those words. Redemption is only necessary. Grace is only amazing. And forgiveness is only needed because God is holy and just. And his justice demands the judgment and punishment of sin. And that's good news, y'all. Can I get an amen for God's righteous judgment? Divine judgment means that Satan doesn't get to roam free on the earth forever. Divine judgment means that the millions of my forebears stolen from the bosom of Mother Africa and the millions more subject to the cruel inhumanity of chattel slavery and Jim Crow and continued systemic and unjust oppression shall one day receive the, judge, the justice they did not receive on the side of eternity. 
divine judgment means that the millions of babies that were never even given the chance to take a breath before being crushed in the womb, they will receive justice. Divine judgment means that the millions of mothers and daughters, wives and sisters, girlfriends and best friends, subject to the predations, harassment, the use and misuse of evil men will one day receive justice that our society has denied them for so long. Divine judgment means that one day every sin will be dealt with and hell will be populated with people who never turned to Christ. Can I get an amen for divine judgment? This eternal truth needs to be seared into our hearts and minds. That God is holy and his holiness demands the judgment of sin. And the book of Lamentations is a blinking, a flashing neon sign reminder of this truth. The third and finally, this chapter should remind us should teach us that God's mercy is miraculous. Whew. Studying this book and seeing how the prophet laments the devastation of God's judgment, I can help but marvel at the beauty of what God offers us through Christ. That is to say, that while God's judgment is great, his mercy in and through Jesus Christ is greater still. That is why James 2.13 declares, mercy triumphs over judgment. And how is this possible, friends? How does a thrice holy God who must punish sin forgive sinners? by pouring out his righteous wrath and judgment for our sin on his sinless son, Jesus Christ. The father offered up his one and only perfect holy son as an atonement for our sin. This, this is what makes grace so amazing. This is the good news of the gospel that sinners, by nature, children, an object of God's wrath would find mercy at the foot of the cross. That racists and rapists, murderers and molesters, idolaters and adulterers, the sexually immoral and the self-righteous can find forgiveness and absolution at the foot of the cross. Oh, such were some of us. But we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified because in and through Jesus Christ, God's mercy triumphed over judgment.
Sin has consequences. God's judgment is part of the gospel story. God's mercy is miraculous. Thank you, Jesus.